Welcome to Federal Insights for May, mitigating cyber risks to ensure business continuity. Sponsored by Akamai. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today, Patrick Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer of Security Strategy at Akamai. Patrick, MIT reports an internet increase of 25% from January to March. Akamai researchers combed through 2 trillion DNS records and saw increased COVID-19 themes. What impact do both of these facts have on federal business continuity? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's no question that we're seeing un, unprecedented increases in internet traffic. Uh, and, you know, we're pretty used to seeing sort of a 10, 12 terabit a second uh, burst for an event and then things quickly subside. Uh, but to give you an, an indication, the peak traffic we saw in Q1 of 2019 uh, on our platform was around 70 terabits a second. Uh, Q1 of 2020, that is now closer to 170 uh, terabits a second. Uh, and to put that into context, you know, a terabyte is uh, the uh, physical equivalent of 1,300 filing cabinets all filled with, uh, with pieces of paper uh, jam-packed. So, so just phenomenal levels of, of traffic. Uh, and I think the good news is overall, the internet at large has, has held up uh, quite well. You know, there have been some uh, cases where uh, gaming downloads have been uh, throttled to, to, make, uh, to make way for other types of traffic. But uh, by and large, uh, you know, big internet uh, traffic uh, holding up well. I think we're seeing more fragility in corporate networks, remote access systems, uh, and those type of uh, systems. And to your point, uh, certainly there has been an increase in uh, phishing using lures uh, related to COVID-19, uh, something our researchers have seen as, uh, as well as uh, several others, the U.S. Secret Service, uh, NSA, uh, and, and uh, other organizations uh, at, at other government agencies. Well, we see increased internet usage. We see an increase in attacks as well. Well, many federal agencies uh, use virtual private networks, VPNs. Now, this is a concept established 20 years ago. We see many federal IT managers relying on VPNs for remote access. What about continuity in this VPN system we have now? Yeah, John, to your point, I mean, the VPN has been sort of the workhorse over recent decades. Uh, it's sort of the, uh, the predominant mode of uh, extending remote access. Uh, it, it, you know, in some ways, that is uh, sort of uh, perpetuating that uh, perimeter security model where, you know, access is synonymous with your position on the network topology. Uh, we do see, you know, more recent evolutions around zero trust uh, where that notion of, of extending security at the network layer uh, really is a level of risk uh, that, that people are, are less and less comfortable with uh, just due to the fact that it uh, provides uh, such a repeatable uh, avenue for attackers to kind of move laterally from uh, you know, initial point of compromise and make their way on that trusted network to uh, to crown jewels type of uh, an application there. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'd say that that's sort of part of it, John. And, and then also, I think we see, uh, you know, should that VPN be a hardware appliance, uh, it does not have a great deal of elasticity. So if it's designed for X number of users and, and you exceed X number of users, uh, we do see people that are in some, some uh, capacity crunches. You know, um, if you talk to the people at the DOD, they talk about an attack surface. And uh, that's what I see the increased internet usage here during the health crisis of a bigger attack surface. And uh, that bigger attack surface means more potential for people to uh, come with phishing attempts and move in and move laterally. And is, is, this, is this lateral move different or has the denial of service attacks changed since this uh, whole COVID crisis has started? So the, the lateral movement, I think, is a repeatable uh, element of, of almost every 
uh, attack kill chain, whether it's Lucky Martin or the, the MITRE attack framework, that is something that's that's so repeatedly used by attackers that it's codified in the uh, the methodologies that are used there. So, so that hasn't changed. Uh, and I think that doesn't change until we move to more of a zero trust architecture. Uh, you highlighted uh, DDoS. I think that is a primary risk that we've seen uh, shift as more uh, of the organization uh, mission critical uh, work is being done via remote access the vulnerability uh, of remote access systems then becomes that much more important. So I, I have had a fair number of conversations with security leaders who are rethinking the risk of, you know, particularly a DDoS attack targeting remote access infrastructure and, and you know, making sure that, that those are as resilient as they need to be uh, to continue to support uh, mission critical applications, even in the face of increased traffic load and, and potentially a DDoS attack uh, hitting somebody at their most vulnerable. Speaking of zero trust, I think that uh, 2020 here in February, NIST just issued the second draft of zero trust architecture. This document indicates perimeter-based security is insufficient. How is this connected to keeping federal systems online? Does this assist in keeping the doors open for federal websites? Yes, so I, I think that, you know, really that, that zero trust uh, methodology was, you know, first coined by, uh, by analysts, you know, the foresters, the gardeners of the world. But if you look at the underlying uh, philosophy there, you know, much of that could be traced back to the United States Department of Defense and, and work at DISA. Uh, and it's mostly just common sense. And I think we ended up sort of in a perimeter security model due to shortcomings in technology a couple of decades ago, right? It, it, it was, uh, you know, not exactly uh, consistent with things like least privilege, uh, you know, notions of authenticating before you connect. Uh, we ended up making some compromises there. But I think the good news is technology has advanced so much so that we can now move our security from the network layer up to the application layer uh, and, and really have security that is identity aware, that, uh, that does not uh, provide uh, such excess, uh, excessive access uh, that, that we've seen repeatedly leveraged by adversaries. So, you know, in 2020, it's, there are technologies that are readily available to, to grant access only with micro entitlements uh, based on least privilege, based on your identity, uh, where there's strong authentication before there's ever a connection. Uh, and I think, you know, more fundamental uh, information security 101 uh, philosophy. Great. I think if you talk to a uh, systems engineer, they'd understand zero trust. Uh, but more importantly, they'd understand this concept of a, a very, very small uh, network segment, you know, a kind of a miniature segment. Huh? Is, that, is that what they do? Just trying to miniaturize those segments as much as they can? Yeah, that, that's one approach, and I think that's known as uh, sort of uh, micro segmentation. Uh, that carries with it a you know still a, a good bit of uh, complexity, and really where we see that uh, targeted is is what's known as east-west. So from one user to another, uh, I think the technologies we see uh, moving from user to application, you know, there you see technologies like a software-defined perimeter or uh, an identity-aware proxy, uh, and in that model, you understand the identity of the user, you perform strong authentication, you understand the posture of their device, uh, and really the syntax of the request, uh, location of the request. And rather than just kind of in a VPN model, you know, given John Gilroy uh, access to our network, a fundamental level of access for eight hours, sort of the, uh, probably the most orthogonal notion to zero trust uh, that you can think of, here you're giving request by request access. So each request is mediated by a proxy, uh, and then should everything uh, meet policy, that request would be indirectly relayed uh, to the compute where that data that we're protecting lives. Uh, and then you lock down with a micro perimeter that, uh, that source of data and limit who has access to that in a direct sense, uh, 
really only to those uh, gateway security devices that are uh, allowing that proxy request. My guest today, Patrick Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer of Security Strategy at Akamai. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Mitigating Cyber Risks to Ensure Business Continuity, sponsored by Akamai on Federal News Network. Today, more than ever, upholding the mission of your agency is paramount. Whether that means ensuring the efficiency of remote workforce performance or scaling application availability and reliability, Akamai is here to meet you where you are and get it done securely and seamlessly. Having supported the public sector for more than 20 years, Akamai is a trusted provider to each of the nation's cabinet-level agencies. To learn more about how Akamai can support your agency's remote workforce and business continuity, visit us at Akamai.com. Welcome back to the discussion, Mitigating Cyber Risks to Ensure Business Continuity, sponsored by Akamai on Federal News Network. My guest today, Patrick Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer of Security Strategy at Akamai. Patrick, we were talking about NIST and the new guidelines it have. How is this going to impact the people of the DOD and all throughout the federal government as far as business continuity goes? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the fantastic things about uh, NIST is, is how thoughtful they are when they make uh, recommendations it's recommendations for the next 10 years, not for the next 10 weeks. Uh, and I think one of the things that we could draw from in that, uh, in that NIST uh, the paper that's in draft today is they talk about zero trust being a philosophy, something that you implement over time. It's not a big bang or a single product that you go uh, you know, make a, a swap out on a technology stack overnight. Uh, I think the way to think about it is, is more of a philosophy is as you're making individual IT and security decisions, this is a philosophy to keep in mind. So I think one way that you could consider that uh, in the face of a surge of remote access is, you know, every network's a little bit different, but, but you may, uh, you know, face a challenge of, you know, do we double down on expanding capacity of, uh, you know, remote access that's, that's a, a piece of hardware uh, at, our, at our corporate data center, or do we use this as an opportunity to, uh, to, to move further down that spectrum of, of zero trust? And so an example there could be making the decision of starting with potentially contractors or third parties who are potentially at a higher risk uh, than a government employee and maybe moving them to a zero trust uh, solution to, to, to give more capacity and at the same time reduce the risk uh, you know, of that community. Another approach in the short term could be moving web applications to zero trust. Uh, those are very, very easy uh, place to get started uh, you, you know, down the path of zero trust. Uh, and the nice part there is you may be able to extend access to those applications to somebody who's working remote without requiring uh, government furnished equipment. Uh, so, so you may be able to do that without a client uh, and, and that solution would then make an access decision of, you know, given the posture of that device, the sensitivity of that application on an app by app basis, uh, somebody may be able to be fully functional uh, without the government, uh, you know, having all of the, the hardware and IT cost of supporting that endpoint. If you look around what's happened in the last three or four months here, we see data centers are accommodating this big surge by bumping up existing architecture like, like more hardware. You just mentioned some. Some federal IT managers have been busy provisioning new remote users as well. So you get push and pull from both ends of the systems here. So, so what does all this change mean for business continuity? Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, planners always have a very difficult job and, and nobody has an infinite budget. So most organizations, you know, made somewhat of a, a risk capacity planning decision of, you know, on a given day, we have X percent of our workforce that works remotely. We want to plan for a worst case scenario. And maybe that's a snow day uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, you know, everybody has a different contingency they plan for. Uh, 
but with a hardware solution, you know, unfortunately you pay for whatever you build. So if, uh, if you're building, uh, you know, a stadium to accommodate the Super Bowl, does that go unused, you know, for 364 days out of the year? The nice part about sort of a SaaS or a cloud model is you pay for what you use. You have that scale, the ability to scale up, you know, into the hundreds of terabits a second. Uh, but you only pay for what you use. So you don't have to make that perfect decision, you know, how much capacity do I pay for that goes unused or how much risk do I accept that should should our requirement for remote access spike, I can only accommodate X percentage of users. Uh, one of the big advantages I think we've seen of, of a cloud model in recent years. You know, if you uh, look at what's been happening the last three or four months, what we see is an increase in distributed denial of service attack. And traditionally they go after data and everyone's sort of, you know, data breaches, but I think what's happening today is we see these attacks focusing in on VPN technology. What, what's going on here? We got a whole new attack factor, don't we? Yeah, I think remote access uh, has certainly been in the news for the last six to nine months. Uh, as much as anything as an initial point for a, a data breach, uh, there's, there's been a, a round of vulnerabilities uh, in many of the uh, remote access solutions on the market. You know, NSA has issued uh, repeated warnings uh, has had their peers in the UK and, and Australia and other uh, places around the world. Uh, I think some of that gets down to the complexity of supporting both legacy applications and then also modern web applications, which have a very different attack surface. Uh, so that has been, uh, we've seen that from state-sponsored attackers all the way down to financial attacks to, uh, to ransomware attacks. Now, the initial uh, point of infiltration could be the remote access solution. Uh, so I think that's one thing. And I think the other uh, area you spoke about is just the increased risk uh, of, around the availability of, uh, of the remote access solution, making sure that it's resilient in the face of a DDoS attack. Uh, many attackers know to target somebody when they're at their weakest point. Uh, and right now, I think almost every organization's uh, remote access is more strained than it's been uh, probably ever. Uh, so, so I think that's the fear is, is what is the risk of DDoS targeting it at exactly the wrong time uh, and just making sure that you have resiliency to, to thwart those type of attacks. Patrick, we know you got a lot of experience in this field and you can remember 10 years ago when federal leaders talked about moving to the cloud, like it was one cloud over somewhere over Kansas or something, you know, perhaps they should have used the plural clouds. Today, the federal government lives in this multi-cloud environment. So is another challenge. So what kind of new challenges does this multi-cloud, you know, mean for federal leaders as far as continuity goes? Yeah, John, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think the dominant architecture that we see is hybrid multi-cloud. You know, it seems from almost every organization, there's some compute that's still gonna live in your own data center. Uh, so you've got some co-location that you maintain, uh, and then seldom do you see an organization move everything to a single cloud. Uh, almost invariably, you know, the productivity suite tends to gravitate towards uh, one cloud or, or uh, SaaS provider. Uh, you know, developers have an affinity for uh, maybe a different provider over, over the others. Uh, and then there's other providers that do specialty things like artificial intelligence. Uh, so it sort of seems that most organizations just gravitate towards hybrid multi-cloud. Uh, and I think really the, the challenge there for security architects or opportunity, depending on how you look at it, is where do you deploy your security controls, right? John, to your point, 10 years ago, it was really simple. Uh, you buy a box and you stick it in your data center or data centers. Uh, problem done, you know, that was a, a convenient choke point. You know, today as that compute exists, not only in your own data center, but across multiple uh, CSPs, it seems that, that the, uh, the prevailing wisdom is that the edge is gonna be uh, 
that that new focal point. Uh, Gardner calls it the, the secure access service edge, but really the model there is rather than trying to replicate and gain kind of a homogeneous level of visibility and security across all of these disparate uh, clouds, which each kind of act a little bit differently in your own data center, uh, which is certainly different than the cloud. You have a common uh, choke point very close to the end user. That's your point of enforcement. And then from there, you can have a common uh, set of security controls that filter the traffic out uh, to wherever that compute lives. Um, even if it's kind of an edge compute model that, that moved beyond you know, the traditional uh, cloud uh, that we think of. Um, so I think that's kind of the most flexible architecture and where things are headed. My guest today, Patrick Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer of Security Strategy at Akamai. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Mitigating Cyber Risks to Ensure Business Continuity, sponsored by Akamai on Federal News Network. Today, more than ever, upholding the mission of your agency is paramount. Whether that means ensuring the efficiency of remote workforce performance or scaling application availability and reliability, Akamai is here to meet you where you are and get it done securely and seamlessly. Having supported the public sector for more than 20 years, Akamai is a trusted provider to each of the nation's cabinet-level agencies. To learn more about how Akamai can support your agency's remote workforce and business continuity, visit us at Akamai.com. Welcome back to the discussion of mitigating cyber risks to ensure business continuity, sponsored by Akamai on Federal News Network. My guest today, Patrick Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer of Security Strategy at Akamai. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy. You know, business continuity, we talk about a lot, and it's really important for federal systems managers, but at what cost? That's the rub, isn't it, you know? And, and when you're presenting a situation to a federal leader like this, you know, all kinds of different answers here. I think what's going to happen is that you know, six, eight months down the road, cost accountants may look at this idea of using VPN for access and question it, you know. So let's just take this little issue of cost. From the perspective of cost for business continuity, how could this situation have been improved? Yeah, you know, I think the easy answer there is, is that uh, the economics of kind of cloud and, and usage-based billing are, are tough to beat. Uh, you know, it, as a network planner, you know, I've had to make some of those decisions uh, historically, and it's really tough to be perfect, right? How much uh, bandwidth, how many users do we plan to support on a uh, remote access solution? How regularly do we test test that with a stress test? Uh, the cloud gives you kind of an easy out on a lot of those where there's massive scalability uh, and you're not necessarily paying for uh, that peak capacity until you need to use it. Uh, so I think from the dollars and cents, that, uh, that may be a, a conclusion that comes out of this more of a cloud-based uh, SaaS model for remote access uh, may be the, the way past this, uh, in addition to some of the security benefits that we talked about, getting closer to kind of a zero trust philosophy uh, and moving away from some of the risks that we're seeing uh, as, as adversaries target uh, some of these remote access solutions as their initial point of access to a network. When I think about the DOD, I think about 1941. Ever since 1941, the American military strategy has been to dominate the sky and gain visibility. Let's take this, apply this to business continuity. You know, from the perspective of a manager of a federal network, how can network visibility improve this concept of business continuity? Yeah, that's an interesting analogy there. And I, and I think, you know, to your point, that the higher you are in altitude there, you gain obvious advantages. You're able to see, uh, you control the, the skies. That, that gives you a lot of uh, benefits. Maybe in the, uh, in the security arena, the analogy is, is really kind of the OSI stack. So the the further that your security moves up that OSI stack, uh, the deeper uh, advantage you can have in terms of visibility. Uh, so I think as we've seen uh, security 
moving it from kind of that perimeter security, which is kind of at the network layer, typically layer three, uh, traditionally moving that up to, to layer seven at the application layer, you gain a much deeper insight into how the application is being exercised. Uh, certainly that, that allows you to, uh, to decrypt traffic and inspect traffic that are in uh, encrypted flows. You know, we touched on phishing earlier. Uh, you know, the old guidance around make sure that a link that you're gonna click uh, is HTTPS and that affords you some security. I think that has given way uh, as adversaries know how to, to acquire certs and a lot of the malware links you're gonna go to are gonna be uh, encrypted via HTTPS. Uh, so, so really I think an effective security solution in 2020 needs to be able to, to certainly decrypt all the traffic flows at a minimum and then also uh, understand the, the nuances at the application layer to be able to, to get that visibility into what's happening and apply policy at, at the app layer. You know, Patrick, a lot of uh, people in the federal government, I'll talk about the bottom line. You know, in other words, you know, federal IT leaders are responsible for making sure their systems are up and running in any crisis. And, and that's the bottom line, those systems got to run. And so is the system that's based on VPN flexible enough to respond to these unanticipated stress tests that's coming up? I mean, it seems like it, it, it's a bad system. Yeah, you know, I think there are strengths of a VPN. You know, as, as we said earlier, it's a workhorse. It's, it's served as well for you know, a couple of decades. Uh, so there are things that, uh, that the, the VPN uh, does well, but I think where we're seeing the VPN, uh, you know, really being replaced by kind of a next generation of technology around the next refresh cycle is that ability to, to manage web application uh, type of attacks, that ability to, to, to not extend access at the fundamental level to the, to the network layer, but rather give app by app, uh, request by request access uh, to disrupt that uh, that lateral movement that that adversaries have, have come to know and love, uh, so I think those are are primarily challenges. And then I think we also see just the uh, lack of elasticity. You know, any type of a hardware device that that lives at the the data center uh, is going to have a a pretty finite level of capacity. And to bump that up beyond its capacity, often you're buying you know additional hardware you're acquiring additional uh, capacity into the data center. So I think those are challenges. And then to your point earlier, as more and more uh, compute moves to a hybrid multi-cloud, really the, the VPN is, is really positioned at the wrong place in the architecture. You know, if the VPN exists uh, at a couple of core data centers across the, the enterprise at HQ and a couple of other large corporate data centers, you end up with some really inefficient traffic flows where traffic has to uh, traverse uh, networks through some, uh, potentially uh, constrain corporate networks to get to your security devices like the VPN and, and uh, other devices. Whereas if you move that, uh, that function to the edge, you end up with a, an optimal traffic flow regardless of where that, uh, where that traffic is destined. So if you adopt sort of a SaaS productivity suite, uh, if your compute moves to uh, one or more uh, cloud environments, uh, that that enforcement point is is optimal. You don't have to necessarily have traffic come to a corporate HQ to just turn around and uh, trombone back to a, a cloud data center somewhere. Um, so I think those are all uh, drivers that, that really are leading folks like Gardner to, to sort of forecast around the next refresh cycle, we'll see uh, VPN technologies being replaced with more of a zero trust access model uh, that's, that's driven from the edge. I'd like to thank today's guest, Patrick Sullivan, Chief Technology Officer of Security Strategy at Akamai. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, and you're listening to Federal News Network.
For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Business Continuity. Thank you for listening to Federal Insights for May, mitigating cyber risks to ensure business continuity. Sponsored by Akamai on Federal News Network.